0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the MedTalk podcast. This episode I'm speaking to Professor Simon Fischel. Simon's a pioneer in the fields of IVF and embryology and he worked with a team that helped create the world's very first IVF baby in 1978. Simon's just released a new book called Breakthrough Babies. Um, In it he details his career in IVF. I've been through it, it's a fascinating read and has some really great insights into the technology, the ethical considerations and what IVF means for the future of healthcare. First of all, just uh, thanks for coming on to the podcast. It's my pleasure. When you were first starting out, did you sort of um, ever anticipate IVF was going to be as big a- as it is today?
1: Probably not, because uh, I, when we started out, actually, we didn't know whether it was going to carry on, uh, because it had to become a lot more efficient than it was at the time. But I had a great belief that it would. What's really taken off... and probably some surprise, is how IVF has infiltrated other areas of medical health rather than just infertility on its own. Mm -hmm. Not only did we expand the infertility genre, if you like, in in other words, we didn't think as many people had a, a particular problem that did, we weren't sure we could develop techniques that at that time the treatment couldn't help, and not only did we do all of that, and then find other problems that, that patients had and develop technologies to help them. We never really believed it would probably be as, as broad-based as it is in, in, as I say, the, the medical health arena. So mm-hmm. it's become huge.
0: Yeah, and you, you detailed towards the end of the book some, some of the areas that um, IVF started to, to head into um, nowadays. Mm-hmm. And it, its I, I, I certainly didn't um, know that it, it was that broad um, a field. Where, where is IVF now, say, compared to back in um, the 1980s when you started?
1: Well, first of all, I think we, we've created a, what I call a science out of infertility. So we now understand a vast amount more about the infertility problems that engage both men and women. So mm-hmm. it really was the domain of women back in the 80s. Now we know probably as much as half cause the problem is male. And then of all, The ramifications. We have got a a solution to virtually everything now. Um, The only ones we don't have a solution for or where where it's it's, uh, absolutely a a sterile condition, such as uh, the woman doesn't have eggs or the man doesn't have sperm, but then we can bring in donor gametes. So a woman can still gestate a child, even if she, she doesn't have any of her own eggs. And so we found ways around virtually every aspect of the infertility condition. So I think it's it, it's changed beyond all recognition in terms of who we can treat, how we treat them. And and a big area there is we've redefined family life. And I think that's been a massive social impact that IVF has had on the world. Plus the technology of course is is unrecognisable today.
0: Moving on to the book Breakthrough Babies, I know you've published um, a number of other uh, titles sort of, um, throughout your career. What <clears throat> differentiates this one compared to so, your, uh, your other published works?
1: So this is my personal journey and it's very different. It's, it's a personal, if you like, private account of my involvement in the field as opposed to the other books being purely scientific, purely looking at the technologies mm-hmm. that we use for, for treatment options.
0: Yeah I, I I do love some of the personal details you um you've you've put into it particularly um to do with your parents and their um move, moving to the UK which was a complete accident and um, by, by 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 the sounds of it um have you ever sort of like th- thought about w- what your life could have been like if they um ever got to uh, uh, the, the US instead of the UK
1: well it is mind boggling. what am I I think it was the great grandparents actually it went ended up in California, never heard from again because of the Californian earthquake.
0: So oh, right. who knows
1: who knows how life turns out. <laughs> so I, I had had my mother's parents done what they planned, it would have been New York City and not Liverpool, which looked a little bit like high-rise buildings to them, so they got off the ship. Yeah. And, and, of course, not speaking a word of English. They had no idea where they were. No. So Yes, I, I had no idea how it would have turned out. But then there have been quite a few forks in my own road that, you know, had I decided when I left Cambridge, as I was going to, to end up in New York rather than Nottingham, yeah. uh, who knows how life would have turned out. And that's part of the fascination of people's lives, isn't it?
0: Yeah, of course, and even when you um you, you sort of detail when when you were uh, studying at Cambridge, you've um fell out of love with um, virology when you're um studying that. Mm. Um, what was it that initially drew you to the fields of uh, embryology and IVF?
1: Well, nothing really because it didn't exist. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> asked me um, how 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 did I get into what we now call clinical embryology, and I say, well, I didn't. It didn't exist. We we virtually created the field. What drew me to to change from virology was that I had been in Cambridge a year and I was really getting a, I didn't really enjoy the subject that I thought I would. Mm -hmm. And although I loved Cambridge, I decided it was time to move on. And I was, um, I applied and had a place at Harvard Business School. And also there's a a large um, company called Unilever had offered me a a management training scheme job and I was about to leave until one of my college tutors I was at Churchill College asked me how life was and I told him and he said to me well don't leave yet don't give research up at this stage give it another chance have you heard of this chap Bob Edwards and I hadn't and he was in the physiology department which was about 50 paces away from um, where I was in biochemistry Mm -hmm. so I eventually went across to see him and knew very little about his field except I knew he worked in animal reproduction. And knew very little about that area. Um, and I just went over to have a chat with him and he seemed interested enough and I seemed to be more and more interested in, in our conversation about what he was doing. And then it was an almost, sort of don't call me, I, I'll call you moment, where he said, well, look, Simon, I'd love to, have you joined me? But there's no money uh, in the department to take anybody else on. I haven't got the funding. But if anything changes, I'll let you know. And literally, it was a few weeks later when I was preparing to leave, but I got a phone call from him. And he said, uh, Simon, I've managed to find some money. Do you still want to come and do a PhD with me? And I said yes. And and that's how it all happened, really.
0: Yeah, and, and that was it. Um, that was it. And obviously, yeah, Bob Edwards um, and Patrick Steppdoor and, and Gene Purdy were responsible for... Um, Louise Brown in the first um, Test Tube Baby, as it was known um, back back then. Were you aware of his work um, in, in, in those fields when you for, uh, first started?
1: Well, when I was working with him as a student, yes I was, because uh, he, he gave me three pieces of advice as a supervisor. He said, in the first year, I'll give you all the help you need. In the second year, I expect us to be equals. And in the third year, I expect you to be the authority in your subject. And, the first bit never happened because he was never around much, actually, because uh, <laughs> the IVF work. So he, he was with Steptoe from the early 60s, and Steptoe was the gynaecologist and providing him the material at the time. Mm-hmm. And that was he was based in Oldham in, in Manchester, so you know the northwest of England. Uh, that was where Stepto's domain was, and. Edwards was in Cambridge, so he was traveling always up to Manchester, to well, the Manchester region, Oldham, to do the, the IVF work, the early work, and then the actual patient work with, with Steptoe. Mm-hmm. And the patient work started in about 1969, what we call the clinical work, and terminated in 1978, when Louise Brown uh, was, was delivered, interestingly enough, because Stepto had to retire uh, he was at the same age as then as I am now. He had to retire from the National Health Service where this work was happening, mm-hmm. and so that's why, um, you know, Edwards was actually travelling up there all the time. So I, we, we we saw each other occasionally for catch up. So I knew he was doing that work, but he kept it very much to himself. He sought my advice a lot about uh, when I'd really got to grips with the field, about embryos, how to culture embryos, type of culture medium. Uh, because that was my that was my field, but, of course, his actual involvement with the human work, I mean, there was all those patients before Leslie Brown, Louise's mother, was very much um, in a very sort of quiet enclosed closed domain of him, Steptoe, and uh, Gene Purdy.
0: Mm-hmm. And Can you remember sort of, um, hearing, hearing the news, can you remember what your reac- reaction was like um, about Louise Brown, sort of what it meant for the future of um, IVF and, and science?
1: Oh, well, I remember that very clearly. I, you know, I remember where I was. I just happened to be away in Sheffield at the time, and I, I, I got a message to him congratulating him, as uh, as some people did, but actually not as many as you'd think, because the um, the world appears and and. Uh, 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 society in general, everybody was actually really against it, so yeah. there, there weren't too many people. I can not go sure that, but so I, I, I was elated. Um, but I, I have to say, it, it's probably more downplayed than than you might imagine, because I'd always thought that well, we're doing this in animals, and you know, why should the human be that different? Mm-hmm. Um, and just assumed the work would. Continue in some form or another, but of course they had their own battles then because um, Scepter had to retire. There was no way of continuing the work at that time.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean, speaking of of battles, it, it's always you know in in the book, it's it's very much you and scientists in the field against regulation and against the ethical considerations that surround IVF. Why do you think there was such a backlash in uh, in the beginning? Was it because you were playing into God's hands, almost, uh, doing work that we shouldn't be doing.
1: Yes, I think a lot of people believe that human procreation was in the providence of the divine, and it's something we shouldn't mess with. Um, For us, it was a scientific study, a scientific discipline for, um, well, I was about to say infertility doctors, but there weren't really many around. Hmm. Hardly any of those days. That what there were, were were gynecologists, and a few had a bit of an interest in infertility. But, but most people just uh, believed that it was intractable. You couldn't do anything about it. And they were the kind people. The rest of society tended to believe, yes, you shouldn't mess with this. Uh, it's bad luck for people who are infertile. If you're infertile, that's just um, You know, it's it's, it's unfortunate, but it's God's will. Mm -hmm. And you really oughtn't to mess around with that. And then there were others who just took the view, strong view, people like um, uh, Nobel Prize winner James Watson, who's famous for the Watson and Crick DNA work, just utterly against it and saying that all that will come of this will basically be damaged or abnormal children and and horrendous outcomes. And so there was always the... uh, the naysayers and, 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 and the doom-mongers who were against the work for so many reasons. Some were religious-based, but others just had a fundamental belief that, that it would go wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it, without any sort of scientific basis for, for that either, just 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 a feeling, almost.
1: Well, I don't think there was scientific. For, for, for those who should have understood scientifically that if we can do this work to some extent in animals, then, then well, why shouldn't the human be any different? So I think there was a mixture of reasons. I mean, we even had um, some gynecologists who were interested in fertility. We had one in this country called Lord Winston, Robert Winston. Um, Since then, he's been involved or was involved uh, years later in this work, but he's become a a well-known voice uh, in in the UK. But at the time, he was absolutely anti this work, uh, vehemently against it. And so it really was from all quarters. And that, that just stirred up um, very problematic headlines in the media yeah. as well. And cartoons that were very distressing, not understanding the work that we were actually doing. And so it became rather difficult, especially for Edwards and Stepto, who really didn't want to engage with the media at the time because they just thought there was just too much antagonism
0: mm mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I mean, you've worked in this field uh, a a long time now. how is that? I I, I assume so that the um, the disdain for for IVF has uh, been reduced dramatically. Um, sort of since it's it's uh, been proven to work. Well,
1: that's a very interesting point that you raise because the reality is that we keep moving on and uh, going past. The bit that is now beginning to be seen as acceptable, so let's take basic IVF, Mm -hmm. and then every time we come up with a a solution or another opportunity for a, a further group of patients for whom the basic work couldn't resolve their problem, there is more criticism, there is more concern. But overall, as we've now got to the point where the generation of children that I and my colleagues have been lucky enough to, to help bring into this world, are becoming adults and parents in their own right. Uh, IVF worldwide is, gen, gen, is generally very accepted now. Uh, it's only the more cutting-edge technologies that are really raising eyebrows. Most of the IVF-related procedures now are commonplace. I think it's something like of European births are from IVF babies. There's hardly a classroom in the UK that doesn't have an IVF baby. So it is much more acceptable now and talked about. But in those early days, the patients, and I'm even talking about a decade later, the patients wouldn't be telling their family and wouldn't be telling their friends they were going for IVF that everybody was so concerned.
0: Right, so there was still that social stigma uh, attached to it. Absolutely, it was. It seems just it's an amazing technology, um, really, when when you think about it. It's it's absolutely fantastic. Um but as, as you've mentioned, it can be used for sort of so much more. Um, is it a bit frustrating to think that due to ethics you can't say uh, look at an, an an embryo to see if it has a sort of genetic disease. Is that not a really frustrating aspect of uh, re- regulation? Yeah, well there's two
1: frustrating aspects. Well, several frustrating <laughs> aspects. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I think there is there is frustration to the point that um, ethics is a very difficult subject to get to grips with. What is genuine ethics? So I've been involved in procedures for patients that, at the time, were deemed at the time was deemed unethical. Um, there were plenty of people who were objecting that have now become commonplace. So the question then is, if over time society gets used to something and it no longer becomes an ethical issue were the debates originally ethical debates or just social and personal views about something mm-hmm. and therefore should not the person who's suffering have as much weight about how they want to resolve their problem as their next door neighbor so yes it, it's been frustrating um, from the ethical sense it's been frustrating because that also feeds into the amount of the ability of research that you can do, and then to be able to raise the funding to do that research. So one of the great difficulties of IBF over the years is it's been very difficult to acquire funding to do good research. And that has really only ever come out, primarily, anyway, early on, it was solely out of the private sector. And, and, and even though it's been, I think, such a miraculous breakthrough, one that acquired the Nobel Prize for, for Robin Edwards and one that has created over 8 million IVF babies worldwide, et cetera, et cetera. The amount of funded research that has not been generated from the private sector is tiny. And, and that's been a great frustration over the years. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and, and you do describe a lot of run-ins with um, the human fertilization and embryology authorization uh, and the regulation of, of, your, of your research um, obviously, regulation is, you know, very necessary in science. But do, do you think it can hinder um, advancements in technology and, and processes?
1: It can, absolutely, it can. And it certainly, if you from the patient's perspective, it can, it can, well, it can, it can be so damaging that you never achieve what you want to achieve mm-hmm. uh, in 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 your lifetime. So, for example. Um, There's a couple I describe in the book where we wanted to produce what's known in the media as a saviour sibling to um, help probably save the life and at least dramatically improve the life of a very sick child of theirs. And in the end, we could do the technology, but we had an injunction taken out against us to stop us doing it because a group felt that that was unethical. And this went, in the end, all the way to the House of Lords, and eventually was deemed acceptable, it was deemed the regulator could um, permit this technology, but for those, that particular couple and that sick child, it was too late because mm-hmm. she'd gone beyond the age at which we could help her because um, you know, we all have, and particularly women, a biological clock, and once you go beyond that, there's nothing you can do. Nice. So that, you know, that, that's particularly frustrating because now that is commonplace procedure it's normal practice if, if these situations arise. But at the time, it was it was devastating for them. So yes, it can delay things, regulation, and it can be a barrier, but there has to be a balance because human reproduction is so profound that you do need regulation. You do need an extent of regulation. And sometimes in the UK, although I've had my battles and I've had my problems with them, I think most of the time we, we we get it right. You just have to be able to get there to um, to allow, get the regulator to give you the permission, and it just may take time. And those those balances are difficult to achieve. I, I think there could be improvements to the way we're regulated in the UK, but mm. it's better than having no regulation at all.
0: Yeah, of course. And um, is it is it is it now sort of much harder to. Um to develop new te- new technologies compared to then compared to when it was first starting out
1: well it it, it depends so when i was developing the sperm injection technology that uh, you know looking back it's rather amusing to be in the cap 22 to say well great it looks really good just prove it safe before you use it mm. and then you know i spent 3 years going to italy and it seemed fine for uh, the uk to say well that's great you've proved it safe on italians you can now bring it back to the uk <laughs> I always look back and think that's rather amusing. No, there there are there are still um, some very difficult hurdles because one of the great problems is that the regulator themselves are tied into an act of parliament, and it's the way the act is written that sometimes creates almost insuperable barriers for some of the things we want to do. And if you have to go back and change the act. To do what you want to do because the act wasn't really written for um, 2017, 2017 in science. It was written in, in well 1990, and then it was modified in 2008. Mm-hmm. You know, you could see the problems because science is always, well, generally going much quicker than the regulators and the ethicists can can keep up with, yeah. and, and the lawmakers. So. You know, we we do have those those problems in the UK, and sometimes some of the work that I wanted to do, I still have to do abroad, or others have done it abroad, and then we can use it.
0: Mm. And um, in the book, you're described as um, someone who's working on the edge of of regulation and sort of pushing pushing the boundaries. Um, does that still apply? Or are, you, are you still looking at um, you know new ways new ways of applying technology to um, certain areas?
1: O- always. always we. We are so lucky that sometimes you wouldn't think so, sometimes you think it's a bit of a crazy world, especially if you're living in the UK at the moment. (laughs) It's all a bit upside down and incredulous, but we do live in a world where there are some very brilliant people doing wondrous things. And one of the areas that's changed our world completely, although it's invisible to most, is bioinformatics in genetics. These bioinformaticians working with molecular geneticists are just doing remarkable things. And and that's only one example. So there is a, a raft of amazing science going on. And what one needs to be able to do is to, is to look at what's happening in other fields and see whether they're relevant to you, whether you can bring them into your area and go with leaps and bounds with that technology into your field, improving it, um, dramatically or exponentially and, and we've seen that in IBM. It's, it's just being able to have the peripheral vision to pick up the trans, you know, tangential science that you can then uh, deliver it in your own subject. and that what, It's happening all the time, it's, it's happening all around us all the time and, and, and sometimes you go to conferences and, 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 and you think nothing's happened in, in a couple of years and then out of the blue Two or three years later, the fields begin to change dramatically. And I think because there is such a, um, an interest in, in human health in general and um, human procreation, particularly because it's more than just the individual suffering, which, which is huge. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a social problem. You know, the way people want to reproduce and procreate societies that have declining birth rates. There's a very big, wider issue out there that, that, in a sense, IVF plays into. And so we want to keep improving the way we do IVF because uh, you know, if you go to any standard medical procedure, let's suppose you need your hip replaced, you'd expect that to be done and done properly. Mm-hmm. With IVF, unfortunately, the, the expectation is you're likely to fail more than succeed on any single attempt. So there's always that desire to improve just the basic IVF procedure because human reproduction is, is inefficient in any event. IVF is actually more efficient in nature at doing it, but it's still not 100%. It never will be 100%. But even in the best clinics in the world, if it's 50%, it's still 50% not good enough, Yeah. as it, as it were. So, yes. And then that's the basic and then on the side of that, there's all the problems that, that, that are associated, where it goes wrong, why it goes wrong, why can't you treat this type of condition. So we're looking all, all the time, and that's what makes it such an exciting field to be in, and that excitement has to be, has to be bolstered um, by new technology that's coming from well, a range of different sciences.
0: It's interesting how much'. Um... Collaboration, you, you mentioned sort of uh, around the world um, in, in the book, and you've touched on it sort of briefly there, but um, do, do you think Brexit risks scientists not being able to collaborate with peers from the UK into the, into the EU? Um,
1: I don't think there will ever be any barrier to prevent scientists interacting one way or the other. It might just be harder. It might be less efficient. The funding may not be there. Um, and, and there's always that tragedy and that, that frustration when you know you could get something done in, in, in two years that might take you 10 years. Mm-hmm. But it will happen. We, we will carry on. We, we will find ways to do this. And it may well mean that, actually, if it really is as tough as some people predict, then brain, you'll get a brain drain. You know the old phrase, the brain drain. You'll, you will get people moving around to be able to do what they want to do in another country. Mm-hmm. Um, i hope in the UK it doesn't come to that. Um, we just have to wait and see what this all means. But uh, I, I have little doubt that one way or the other, medical science will continue to develop and our IVF technologies will continue to change. Whether Britain, as its original pioneer, will be a part of it remains to be seen.
0: Yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, it's definitely all up in the air at the moment. Um, <laughs> it is unfortunately. It is. I, I
1: tell you, a lot of a lot of, you know, I spent um, a few weeks in China before, the end, before Christmas, the end of last year, and um, it, it, you know, it, we 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 mustn't lose focus. We don't lose focus. There are some fantastic things going on in different parts of the world. You know, the hu- humans have this brilliant organ called the brain. And the ingenuity that, that's just in our own field, my own field, is um, that's happening in, in different parts of the world is, is, is
0: amazing. Yeah, of course. And um, in the industry, I write about. Uh, I'm seeing you, you look lucky, lucky enough to be able to, uh, to see that all the time, and um, mm-hmm. sort of where the different research is, is occurring. And it is; it's international all, all, all the time. It's, it's totally international. Yeah, we, from the US, to China, we, to you know, we, we're
1: just not. a as, as a country or individual you can't be an island you have to, you you have to have you know, far, far reaching vision
0: yeah of course and um, so you started uh, your work at Bourne Hall in nineteen eighty um, and moved on to pop park Clinic in nottingham yeah um and then you spent some time at nurture um, at the university in in nottingham and yep. it's probably the most intense chapter of of a book um it's uh you you describe it as being some of the most joyous uh experiences of your life, but it's also soured by the by the way uh, it comes to an end. When you yeah. were um, writing that particular chapter and um, so sort of a uh, lawsuit that followed after you, after you left, did it, um you know did it sort of uh, sour your sort memories of of looking back on that time?
1: It was painful. Mm. Um, uh, I, I, I so. Nurture itself, I coined the phrase because I, I, you know, I, I moved to set up this department within the university. Nurture stood for the Nottingham University Research and Treatment Unit in Reproduction. And um, that to me was the culmination of my life. It, it stemmed from being at Board Hall. When I was at Board Hall, we used to get visitors from all over the world coming to want to learn IVF. And I had huge frustration with plenty of people that, that, that came through there. I felt sorry for many of them because they just had no knowledge. They were desperate to understand how to provide this technology for their patients mm-hmm. in their country. And there were others that were coming to gain the knowledge for absolutely the wrong reason. Yeah, you know, they wanted to go and provide private practice in their country with bad technology, and and all these things were very enormously frustrating to them. And I, and I decided one day, if I ever get the opportunity, and I wanted to do it at Cambridge, but Cambridge at the time again was was looking down its nose at at sort of IVF and and the work we were doing, so they didn't want anything to do with it. No. But if I ever got the chance, I wanted to make this an academic discipline. And when I moved to Nottingham, I wanted to do it then, but that was 1985. And we had no regulation in the UK. It was still, to all intents and purposes, it was un Still, it was accepted you know, we were doing it, but it wasn't deemed to be certainly not a science, and it was a, a sort of a peripheral medical process. In 1990, we had the Act of Parliament. Which is why, of course, you know, I was in two places. I was at the University of Nottingham from 1985 as an academic, but I could only do my IVF at the Park Hospital, which is nine miles up the road, because you know it wasn't deemed to be acceptable to do it in academia. And then in 1990, when we had the active parliament, I then had the opportunity to do this work in the university, and there I had the chance to do what I dreamed of doing years earlier, and that is to create an academic IVF facility where not only could we teach and train and provide the highest level of treatment for patients, I could start the world's first degree course in IVF. It was a master's degree course, and that's what I did. And that was a great joy to me. It was everything I wanted to aspire to achieve. And when it went wrong, that was of enormous (laughs) discomfort to me because you know, I'd set this facility up and I'd only agreed to go and do it on the basis that it was non-profit making and therefore um, although the university charged the patients and therefore the fees from that would generate um, funding
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'd assume that I would be getting a, or the department that I was running at the time, Nurture, would get a significant amount of that funding to do exactly what we said in all our patient literature, to fund research to fund teaching, to fund training. And I wasn't allowed access to it. And those monies were going elsewhere. And as I say in the book, I think in the end, you either put up and shut up, <laughs> or you you grow old and very miserable. And <laughs> I I I wasn't prepared any longer after a number of deliberations with the vice chancellor and trying to get a committee set up to see how the surplus fundings were being spent. Um, even if I only got 50% of it, anything where it was at least transparent would have been, of, of, um, you know, I, I think, the proper, right and proper thing to have done because it was an extremely profitable, successful... We became the number one clinic in the United Kingdom on success rates. Mm-hmm. We had technologies that nobody else had we had a uh, very successful uh, uh, master's degree training program, and so it was uh, a good cash cow, as it were. But when I couldn't get a minimum amount of funding for research was when it started to go sour. So I decided to take my, my own decision in the end, uh, when it wasn't going to get resolved, to leave. Now, if you've committed a misdemeanor in life, uh, normally your employer warns you, and I even give you a couple of warnings, particularly if it's a bad misdemeanor. Mm. They don't normally sue you. <laughs> no. Well, I was still an employee. I just resigned, but I had to work my three months' notice. I hadn't gone barely a month, and I got a writ. And the, this, this litigation ended up to be something enormously huge. And... It took three years, and finally went to the high courts of justice, where we were weeks in the high courts. So it was it was so so significant that it actually became a, almost cause celebre in academic uh, law. Um, in fact, one of my children who studied law eventually actually ended up studying my case. So they, I think they called it the fishing Effect or something. Yes, oh, yeah, you mentioned I'm that. <laughs> anyway. and, but when I was to get to the point that you did ask about writing the chapter. Um, even after all those years, I found it enormously painful. I had to, for example, go through some of the trial transcripts, because I quote a little bit of, in, in there. Uh, I went back through the pain of, of actually the dirty tricks and what went on mm-hmm. to try to destroy me. Um, and it was it, it was scarring. It was scarring. I, I, I have no doubt that I did the right thing. Um would I do it again, knowing what was going to happen? Probably wouldn't want to do it to my family, but mm-hmm. I would certainly do it again because you, you know, actually the irony is you, you now know you wouldn't want to be affiliated with something that or or, or individuals that, that took the views about of your work and your life the way they did. So yeah, it was hard to write that chapter, but I felt I had to do it because it was a big part, not just of my personal life, but actually why I moved away from what was probably the best unit in the United
0: Kingdom. Yeah, and it does, it it comes across as that sort of pain struggle, that, um, you know, the choice between leaving or um, or, or staying and accepting the decision. Mm. But um, it it was was truly fascinating. Um, I was describing it to a colleague and just the acts of almost espionage that uh, (laughs) that take place um, against you are uh, astounding. Um, But... Now you're um, at the Centre for Assisted Reproduction, um, or mm. care, which is um, now the largest IVF group in, in the UK, if, um, if that's mm-hmm. still correct. Yes, that's right. So it's, um, it's come on full circle. And, uh...
1: Well, it just shows the potential we have. And, and of course, many of the colleagues, and, and I do describe in the book, uh, I was given a very careful piece of advice not to tell anybody why, why I was leaving or that I was leaving because... Um, if anybody ever joined me, there they, uh, they would be at risk, and I would be at risk of uh, being further sued for enticing staff. Mm-hmm. So they which was the hardest thing of all for me, to try to, to, to resign from some wonderful colleagues that I was working with um, and not let them know uh, what I was going to do. But it turned out, ironically, that eventually all of them, all the very good colleagues, and there was quite a lot of them, came to join me. And so the care journey, Centres for Assistive Reproduction journey, started out in one clinic with all these colleagues joining me eventually. Um, And of course, it just showed that the the, um, dynamism and the contributions of those colleagues with me went on to create the largest and the leading IVF group in the UK. It's not just about size, it's about the amount of contribution and scientific publications that we achieved in the last, uh, whatever it now is, it's, I think it's, it's 20, 21 years, 22 years.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's over it, it, it's a all, it's all dozen colleagues that, that, that come to work with you. Um, I think you're in a big, which must have been An absolute amazing feeling, just to see all these um, people sort of flocking um, to you. Almost. It
1: was. It was slightly. um, It was slightly. I I suppose made a little more tragic from the point that they all, well, virtually all of them, got dragged through the courts, Mm -hmm. um, more as witnesses, um, not that they were they were actually themselves at risk like I was because I was. I was the one that was being sued for all the, the issues that they raised, but um, but they were all dragged through the. So we we're all trying to, for three years build up um, the care fertility group and, and treat our patients, whilst every one of us over a period of time had to end up in in, in uh, the high courts, uh, being cross-examined, and they were fantastic, and I think in a way they've been rewarded too because. We've all had an enormously fruitful career uh, doing what we do and, and, and you know, contributing to the field, which is probably, there's two amazing things to come out of what we do. One is this miracle of the, of the human child that we've helped to bring into the world. And then it's being able to contribute to the field, to be able to do science that then changes the way we do things that others in another part of the world will then take on.
0: Yeah, of course, and that. That love of of your work really comes across in, in in the book. Would you say that's been the most meaningful aspect of your career? Oh,
1: absolutely. Um, every time a, a couple bring back their baby and we see this 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 little creature that that's now got fifty trillion cells and it used to have four when we last saw it, kind of thing, you know. Um, it's it's wondrous. So I think. The, the joy of seeing that child is one thing, and the joy of helping the, the parents is, 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 is very important. Mm-hmm. But the other side of it is still the amazing scientific processes that are going on, that we still have so much to learn, that we still know so little about, although we've learned a huge amount. And the miracle of how these cells become... Um, what we what we know is it, as, as a baby, but that baby is is a mixture of those cells that have gone on to produce um, incredible organs, and then there's this this, this yeah the, the, the most outstanding organ on the planet, which is the human brain. It's, it's just something that you could spend your whole life trying to get to grips with, and you will have an enormous satisfaction in in trying to understand it, knowing that actually you never will. And so it's 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 not just, although itself is wonderful, helping our patients. That's the primary driver. It's working with colleagues around the world that have the same goal as you and maybe the same dream as you, that one day we will understand more to be able to help more people more efficiently than we do today. And it's, it's doing what we do better and being able to keep making it better and you know the one thing that we do that probably is different to almost any other subject is what we change affects generations so for a couple that can't have a child and then we manage to help them have that child that child will go on and be a parent a grandparent and a great-grandparent and therefore we've affected the future of human life
0: all right, thanks, Simon. I think that's a really good point to to end it on. Um, I know there's obviously a, a bunch of other things um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can discuss, but um, I don't yeah. want to give away too much of the book, "Breakthrough Babies." It's uh, published by Practical Inspiration, out today, the fourteenth of March, and available on Amazon, I, I believe. Yes, I believe mean, so. Right, perfect.